Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would be turning in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, and while you guys are turning there, we will be dismissing our children to our children's ministry. So those who are participating in that this morning can uh, just head there to the back room. Our volunteers will be there to greet you this morning. Um, And as I said, everyone else, if you would be turning to Hebrews chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 14, Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. So let me read our passage for us this morning, and then I will take a moment and pray and ask for the Lord's help as we come before the truth of his word. So Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself Without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to be able to gather together as your people under the truth of your word this morning. Father, every week when we gather, I'm filled with expectation of what It is that you intend to accomplish within us because we know that it's in these moments by your grace to us that we are able to hear from you as we read your word together, as we pray your word together, as we sing your word together, and as we proclaim your word this morning. And Father, we know that you have promised us that through the power of your spirit that you have sent to dwell in us and through the truth of your word that you change people. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that very thing among us this morning, that you would be molding and shaping and conforming our hearts to the likeness of Jesus this morning. Father, this world has so many distractions to throw at us. So uh, Satan is tempting us every day to lose our affections for Christ, to draw our attention to other lesser things, tempting us to worship idols, to, to, to bow down to the things of this world, tempting us to fill our hearts and minds with anxiety over all that's happening. And yet your word calls us to a quiet, gentle, faithful rest in your sovereign goodness to us. And so, Father, I pray that the truth of your word would accomplish that very thing this morning, that it would place under our feet a rock-solid, unmovable foundation that we can rest on together. 
And so, Father, I pray that these true words this morning would be a rock to our souls, that we would cling to it, that we would anchor ourselves to the truth of your gospel. Allow me to only speak what is true of you and true of your word for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week as we jumped into Hebrews chapter 9, Nathaniel did a, uh, just an incredible job of grounding us in the details of chapter 9, 1 through 10, where the author of Hebrews walks us through the, this description of the tabernacle, and, and Nathaniel helped us see the significance of these items, of what was there and what God was intending to teach through the, the beauty and the practices of the tabernacle that he established in the Old Covenant law when he revealed it to Moses. And we're reminded of what was required of the priests as they served in this holy place there in the second half of 1 through 10, there in uh, 6 through 10. So we walk through all this, but yet for, for all of its significance and all of the beauty of this old covenant tabernacle, by the time we reached the end of 1 through 10, the author was not reminding us of what it accomplished. He was reminding us of what it could not accomplish. And the grand conclusion to all of this beauty and grandeur that is given to us in 9, 1 through 10, we find there in verse 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. This old covenant tabernacle and the practices that came along with it was limited in its ability and capability. All it could do according to God's word here in Hebrews 9 verse 9 all it could do is, oh, sorry, verses 9 and 10. All it could deal with was the, were these external things. It can never perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It can never do anything internally to us or for us. But that doesn't mean it was pointless. No, it was preparing us for what was to come. It was preparing us for the good things that were to come. It was intended to get us ready for the real thing. So I'm reminded when I was in elementary school, as I'm sure uh, all of you all experienced when you were in elementary school, we had to do all kinds of drills to get us ready for the real thing, right? You had to do fire drills to get you ready just in case the real thing happened, right? You'd have to line up uh, hopefully, line up, go outside together, exit the building to your assigned spot outside. Or you had to do tornado drills. And at least where I grew up, we had tornadoes. And so we'd all have to go out to the hallway, away from windows. And they told us to take a heavy book with us and, you know, put it over our head. And uh, my wife grew up in Japan. So she had, uh, Lori had to do earthquake drills, right? To uh, know what to do if, when an earthquake may strike. And unfortunately, Children today even have to do active shooter drills. And all of those things are not the real thing. But they're there to get you ready for the real thing. So you'll know what to expect and what to do when the real thing finally actually arrives. Now, of course, those drills 
are intended to prepare you for something really bad, <laughs> right? They're to get you ready in case the reality of the really bad thing happens. But yet, in a similar way, the regulations of the first covenant, the tabernacle, its practices, the rituals, all that was there was intended to get us ready for the real thing. But it, of course, it's not a bad real thing. It's a glorious, greater, majestic, real thing that was to come. That's what it was pointing us to. It's why it exists. And it's the very reason why the author of Hebrews walked us through that last week in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. To get us ready for the good things that were to come. It gives us categories to understand what it is that Jesus was accomplishing when he laid down his life on the cross. It gives us physical categories so that we can understand the unseen realities that were taking place when Christ laid down his life on the cross. And that's really important because apart from God's revelation to us where he speaks to us and, <clears throat> excuse me, and tells us truth and reveals the unseen realities to us, right? If you just look at the pure physical reality of what happened to Jesus, it would make no sense to us. Right? This man coming and proclaiming to be the son of God and then all of a sudden he is unjustly arrested, brutally beaten and tortured and nailed to a cross and raised up on that cross where he would eventually suffocate and breathe his last breath. If you just look at that physical action, what does it mean? But what God's word does for us and what God's word is doing for us in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 is taking us behind the scenes to the unseen realities that were happening as those seen realities took place. The author of Hebrews is pulling back the veil on the physical circumstances and showing us these greater spiritual realities that were happening. And it's those unseen realities that took place when Jesus laid down his life on the cross that the author of Hebrews wants us to see this morning. He wants us to see the glories of what Christ accomplished through the cross in these unseen realities. And he's giving us even more reasons to increase our confidence in the work of Christ. Remember that the context, the original context for the book of Hebrews is that this group of Hebrew Christians, these young new believers who are new to the faith and new to Christian, Christianity is new to the whole area. And it comes to these Jews who come to faith in Christ, but yet persecution and hardship is coming and they're tempted to go back to the old ways. And he's continually now for Nine chapters been pleading with them and saying, why would you want to go back to that? There's something greater that has come in Jesus Christ. The greater thing has arrived. The thing, the old covenant, the thing the tabernacle was preparing you for is here. Let me show you what's happened. And so the author now tells us another time why it is that the work of Christ was greater than what came before it every step of the way. And so in verses 11 through 14, we're giving three more ways in which the, the work of Christ is greater than the old covenant. Number one, it's greater because it took place in a greater place. It was a greater place. 
Christ had a, number two, greater sacrifice. And number three, he achieved a greater redemption. So that's the outline. Just remember those three things. Greater place, greater sacrifice, and a greater redemption. A greater place, a greater sacrifice, and a greater redemption. So let's, let's, let's first look at the, the greater and more perfect place, the greater place. Look there with me at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Now you look there at verse 11, it begins with, a really important word, and we see this often in God's word, that important word, but, right? It seems like an insignificant word, but we all know that it carries great weight because the word but means it's con a contrast to what came before. And what is it that came before, right? We, we just looked at it. What comes right before this is the statement that the old covenant cannot purify, it cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That the old covenant regulations, the old tabernacle, the old sacrificial system can do nothing for us internally. It can do nothing for our souls. It can do nothing for our conscience. But yet verse 11 comes and says, but something now has come. Something has come. Jesus Christ has come. He has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Now, remember, at no point in his life on earth did Christ ever have what would have been considered by the Jews the role of a high priest. He never looked like a high priest. He never served in the way they would expect a high priest to serve. He didn't look like a high priest. In fact, it was the high priest himself who rejected Jesus and sent him off to Pilate to be crucified on the cross. That's what their high priest did to Jesus. But remember, we learned earlier in Hebrews that Jesus was a high priest of a different category. He's a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, an eternal high priest. He comes from a greater priestly line. But therefore, what verse 11 is saying to us is that Christ is that as Christ hung on the cross, as he was suffering in those moments, as he was breathing his last breath, in those very moments he was serving actively as our great high priest. Because in that moment, there were powerful, glorious, majestic, unseen realities taking place. Because in that moment, what verse 11 says to us is that Christ went through the greater and more perfect tent. The word tent being another word for tabernacle. Christ went through a greater and more perfect tent. A tent, a tabernacle, not made with hands. That is, not even of this creation. Now think about that for a moment. Don't run past that phrase, not part of this creation. Right? What that means is, it doesn't matter how far our technology advances, it doesn't matter 
how fancy the rockets we could ever build if Christ doesn't return for another 3,000 years. And if somehow we miraculously achieve the ability to travel at light speed or multiples of light speed like they do in Star Wars and Star Trek and all these things where they can hop from one solar system to another side, the created universe. But this tabernacle isn't part of that universe. It doesn't matter how fast you travel or how far you travel. It doesn't matter what stars you reach or the edge of the universe that you can get to. You can never physically travel to this tabernacle. It's not part of this creation. It's not just not made with hands. It's not even in this universe. It's in a different realm altogether. And there is, yes, brothers and sisters, there's great mystery here. But this is the tabernacle that Jesus entered even while he was suffering on the cross. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. These are the unseen realities I'm talking about when I say that as Christ suffered, there were glorious unseen realities happening in the heavenly places that are not of this creation. But I do want you to see that there is an actual connection between that tabernacle and what eventually became the temple, the temple that was there in Jerusalem in the days that Jesus walked on the earth, that temple that was a representation of God's presence among his people, that temple which was a, a basically fancier, more permanent tabernacle that had the Holy of Holies. It was there with the curtains separating the holy places. And that physical temple had a connection to this unseen tabernacle, right? We saw earlier that it was constructed on the basis of that heavenly reality, right? That Moses was shown the pattern on the mountain, but what I want to remind us of is that what took place in this heavenly tabernacle that's of another place, that's not of this creation, what took place there, there had real actual impacts on the temple here. Right? So, so what is it that happened? It's a, if, if you grew up in church, it's, it's a well-known story, right? So, so in verse 12, when Christ entered once for all into the holy places, when he went through to the holiest of holies, right? The holiest of holies there in the heavenly tabernacle. When that happened, what happened in the earthly temple? The curtain that had divided for thousands of years symbolically, throughout the life of Israel, that curtain that kept God's people from entering into the holiest of places. When Christ entered the holy of holies in that heavenly tabernacle, the curtain of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom, right? That's what Matthew 27, 51 says. This wasn't some lightweight, right, disposable tablecloth curtain, right? This is a thick, massive curtain, and it was supernaturally torn from top to bottom that no man could have done. And why did that happen? Because that's the reality of what happened in the greater and more perfect, the greater and more perfect tab tabernacle. Christ tore down the dividing wall 
and no longer existed because he entered into the holy places. Therefore, the earthly temple needed to be an accurate representation of the heavenly temple. And in order to be an accurate representation, that curtain could no longer exist because it no longer existed in the greater and more perfect one. Because Christ entered and made a way, which means now anyone, now anyone can walk into the holiest of places in the presence of the glory of God himself. But a sacrifice is still necessary. It's just not the sacrifice of an animal. It's not even the sacrifice of your own blood. It is to lay claim to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself through faith. And it's through faith in the blood that he shed, it's through laying claim to the blood that Christ shed, that we can now enter in to the open curtain and into the holiest of places. This is part of the good things that have come through Christ our high priest that is mentioned there in verse 11. He entered the holy places once for all time. He entered into it so that we could dwell with God in his presence for all eternity. That's why it's important to see that he's not just a high priest here, but he's a high priest in the heavenly places because now we have access to the actual presence of God. Not the symbolic presence of God, but the actual presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ himself. So the priesthood of Christ is greater because it took place in greater places. But not only that, it was also a greater sacrifice. Look there with me again at verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. So look there again. It says he entered once for all. We saw this a few weeks ago in chapter 7, verse 27 of Hebrews, that when Christ entered, he did it once for all, meaning once for all time, because the human high priest had to do it every year without fail. In fact, every day they had to offer some kind of sacrifice, and every year they had to offer sacrifice for themselves and for the unintentional sins of the people before they could enter into the holiest of places year after year after year. But when Christ appears, he entered once for all because it was done. It was over when Christ entered into the holiest of holies. Now, here's the key question for us this morning. How was Christ able to enter the holy place of this greater and more perfect tabernacle? Well, what does verse 12 say? Well, it first tells us what he didn't use to enter by. It says, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves. And the reason it mentions that is because that's the way the human high priests were able to enter into the Holy of Holies. They had to shed the blood of, of goats and calves to, to atone for their own sins and for the sins of the people before they could enter into the Holy of Holies. And it says, well, he didn't enter that way. Well, how is it that he entered? What does it say in verse 12? He entered once for all by means of his own blood. Now, I want to just pause here for 
a bit. And I just want us to, I just want us to camp out here and meditate on this phrase, by means of his own blood. I think this is just one of those places where it's going to be valuable for us to do this, valuable for us to really just, just meditate over God's word and turn this phrase over and over again to understand exactly what is captured here by the author of Hebrews. So why is it, brothers and sisters, that Christ needs anything outside of the worth of his own person to enter the holy places? Why was the shedding of his blood even necessary? Right? We know from chapter 1, right? Chapter 1 tells us the grandeur of who Christ is. Hebrews chapter 1 is one of the most glorious passages in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is who he is. He is the divine, eternal, glorious, majestic son of God. Jesus is God of very God. And God does not have to shed blood to enter the holy places. Right? The tabernacle is set up in Exodus. It is completed. And the last chapter, the last few verses of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 40, it says that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. How was the glory of, Lord, of the Lord able to enter the tabernacle and able to enter the holies of holies? Because he's the one who made it holy. Because he's the holy one. By the simple worth of his name, he has the right to go where he pleases and where he desires. He is the one who makes it holy. So the perfect, divine, majestic son of God, second person of the Trinity, the one through whom all things were created, God himself could have entered the holy places Anytime he wanted to, by virtue of his own majesty, by virtue of his own holiness, by virtue of his own power and purity. Therefore, why did he have to shed his blood? Well, why did the other priests have to shed the blood of animals before they could go in? Well, we saw that last week, right? Chapter 9, verse 7 says that into the second, meaning the second area, the holy of holies, into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So the earthly high priest, the reason they had to shed blood was because of their own sin. Of course, they also did it for the sins of the people, but they must, they had to do it for their own sins. But yet we're told that Jesus was holy and righteous and without blemish. This passage itself tells us, verse 14, he was without blemish. He is the perfect divine son of God. 
So why did he have to enter by means of his own blood? Because in this moment, though Christ was without blemish, the Bible tells us that he was made to be sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made Christ to be sin. There is unfathomable mystery here. Look, we talk often in this church about the theological term imputation, right? What we mean by that is by God's grace to us, the righteous life of Christ is imputed to us. It is put on us. We are clothed in the righteous life of Christ. Right? If we trust in Christ, if we have faith in Christ, if we belong to him and we are the adopted children of God, we are imputed with Christ's righteousness. It, it belongs to us. And so when we are judged on judgment day, we will be judged by the righteous life of Jesus himself. Well, I'm here to tell you that the exact opposite took, the play, took place in this moment. Our sin was imputed to Christ. He was clothed in our sin. Not theoretically, not symbolically. Actually. He bore our sins in his body, Second Peter tells us, on the tree. So think about this for a moment, right? We talked about it earlier in the prayer of confession, but reflect on the sin of your own life. Like, really think about it. Every wicked act, every filthy or angry thought, every wicked word that you have spoken, every moment of pride or arrogance, all of it, all of the wickedness, all of the rebellion of our lives, specifically, he took on himself. Jesus wore the filthy robes of our sin. Therefore, in that moment, there was only one way that Jesus could enter the holy place. Because in that moment, he was made to be sin. Therefore, he had to shed his own blood. He had to offer himself. He had to lay down his life in our place so that he could enter into the holiest of places. 
So when it says that he entered the holy place by means of his own blood, it was because he was actually bearing the sins of his people, past sins, present sins, and future sins. And because he shed his blood while bearing our sins, it says that he achieved eternal redemption. So I want you to see this connection between our sins, the blood he shed, and the eternal redemption that he accomplished, right? So Jesus was actually made to be sin, to bear our sins in reality. Therefore, he had to shed his blood to enter the holy places. That means that divine blood of the Son of God was spilled to atone for your actual sins. And if your sin has already been atoned for because he bore it on himself when he sacrificed himself, when he laid down his life, he atoned for the sins that he was bearing in that moment when he entered in the holy place. That means your sins have already been paid for. And there is nothing that can ever keep you, therefore, from entering into the holiest of places because God is just. And because he is just, he will not, in fact, he cannot in his justice bring his wrath to bear twice upon the same sin. If the penalty has been paid, it has been paid in full, never to be paid again. And Christ paid it in full. It's what we mean when we sing the song, Jesus paid it all. It's what Jesus meant when he declared on the cross, it is finished. You have been redeemed and bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's not a temporary redemption that can one day be rescinded. It is by necessity of the atoning work of Jesus Christ and eternal redemption. You see, sometimes I think we take for granted all the theology that is behind the reality of what verse 12 says, that he had to enter by means of his blood. The only reason he had to enter by means of his blood is because of the sin he bore. Because he wore our sin as he shed his blood and entered the holy place. And so it's the work of Christ is greater because it took place in a greater place It happened through a greater sacrifice, and then finally it achieved a greater redemption. It achieved a greater redemption. Look there with me again at the second half of verse 12 through verse 14. He secured an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So there it is, right? We we saw this, we, we just talked about it. It is a greater redemption because it is an eternal redemption. It will last forever. He will never turn his back on this redemption. He has purchased us fully. It is paid for in full. But then what the author of Hebrews does is spend the next two verses, verses 13 and 14, telling us how it is that it is an eternal redemption. What is it that's great about this eternal redemption? 
And he begins by making a comparison. In fact, the whole thing is a comparison. And the first half of the comparison comes there in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer is able to sanctify, then how much more will the blood of Christ? So, so let's understand the first half of this comparison in verse 13. What is it that the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of people with the ashes of a heifer actually was able to accomplish? What's, what's being referred to here in verse 13? Well, basically, what the author is referring to is the reality of becoming unclean under the old covenant law. There were certain things people could do that would render you unclean. And being unclean was significant because that meant you were cut off from God's people. You couldn't participate in worship. You couldn't be a part of God's people when you were unclean. You had to distance yourselves. You had to proclaim that you were unclean. You were literally cut off from God's people in the moments of uncleanness. And there were all kinds of ways that you could become unclean. In fact, you weren't to avoid becoming unclean. Sometimes you just had to do what you had to do and you would become unclean. So for example, where this is laid out most clearly and refers to the ashes of a heifer, of a heifer we find in uh, Numbers 19 and and there in Numbers 19, it is laying out for us this reality that one of the ways in which you would become unclean is by being around a dead person. In almost every circumstance, whether on the battlefield or whether someone dying of natural causes, if you touched a person who was dead, you were unclean. Not only that, if you entered a house, a dwelling where a dead person was, even if you didn't see them or touch them, if you entered the house... You became unclean. In other words, if you went to a funeral, you were unclean. If you were a doctor trying to help someone who died under your care, you became unclean. And you were cut off in your uncleanness from the temple, from worship, and from God's people. But God provided a way to be made clean. And Numbers 19 lays this out. It says that they would need to bring a, a red heifer to the priest, one that was without blemish and it never had a yoke upon it, meaning it had never plowed fields. And you would bring this without blemish, never having plowed a filled heifer to the high priest, and he would take it and slaughter it and burn it on the altar, all of it. And they, Numbers 19 tells us, they gathered up the ashes and they would mix it with water. And then they would store the rest of the ashes that were not mixed up with that uh, portion of water. They would store the rest of the ashes in, in a clean place so that it could be used later. And it was called the water for impurity. So it was this water mixed with the ashes of a heifer. They would save some of the ashes for later. When this water ran out, they could make more. And when you touched a dead person, when you were around a dead person, when you went to the funeral of a dead person, when you entered the home of a dead person, when you became unclean, the way you became clean is by three days after that exposure to a dead person, you were to be sprinkled with this water for impurity, this water mixed with the ashes of the heifer. 
on day three, and then you had to be sprinkled again on day seven. Same for the house, the house in which, uh, where the dead person either died or where they were transported to, the house and everything in it had to be sprinkled with the water for impurity, the mix of the water and the ashes of the dead heifer. Now you may be saying, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> How do ashes of a heifer mixed, mixed with water make anything clean? Well, it's how God designed it. And if God declares it to be so, then guess what? It is so. And so it actually, it actually was able to restore cleanness to God's people. If they follow God's law, and on day three, they were sprinkled with the water for impurity, and on day seven, they were sprinkled with the water for impurity, then they were, in fact, made ceremonially clean. They can now participate again in worship. They can now be around God's people again. But Numbers 19 also makes clear that if you didn't do that, if you were not sprinkled with the water that was mixed with the ashes of a heifer, if you either forgot to do it or were indifferent to it or just refused to do it, the Numbers 19 says that you were cut off from the midst of the congregation. So it is real and this sprinkling of the ashes of the heifer, these sacrifices were able to make someone externally clean again. It was able to deal with this ceremonial uncleanness. It was able to restore you to a position of being clean. But even though it could do that, it could do nothing for you internally. That's the point the author is making. Look, it's not that the blood of, of goats and calves and the ashes of this heifer could do nothing. They did something. It, it provided purification of the flesh. It was able to make you clean so that you could participate again. But it could do nothing for the conscience of the worshiper. So the comparison the author is making, he's saying, look, if, if the blood of goats can purify your flesh. What do you think the blood of the eternal, divine Son of God can accomplish? Oh, it can accomplish much greater things. That's the argument the author of Hebrews is making. So he says, look, how much more, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Right? This is the transaction that took place on the cross Christ laid down his life. He spilled his blood. And through the eternal spirit who was giving him strength every moment as he prayed in the garden, as he hung on the cross, as through the eternal spirit, he offered himself without blemish, the perfect lamb of God. He offered himself without blemish to God. You see, you see here in verse 14, the activity of the Trinity in our redemption the Son of God, the Spirit of God, and God the Father all participating in our redemption. And Christ shed his blood and offered himself through the eternal Spirit to God the Father without blemish. How much greater do you think that blood 
is going to be than the blood of goats and calves and a heifer. And it says to us at the end of verse 14 that that blood is able to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, Jesus reminded us it's not any longer what we touch that makes us unclean, right? It's, it's our conscience that makes us unclean. We are unclean. Our dead works condemn us. So what are the dead works? What is meant by dead works that have defiled us? Dead works are anything that we do in our own strength apart from faith in God for the glory of God. In other words, we have a lot of dead works. Right? Romans 14, 23, anything uh, done without faith is sin. We are to do all things for the glory of God. And any work done apart from uh, a, a motive of faith in the glory of God is a dead work. And those dead works have defiled us. They have made us unclean. And yet, what the author of Hebrews says to us in verse 14 is that the blood of Christ is able to purify even our unclean conscience. He can reach inside and do what the law can never do and purify us. And when he does that, what is it that he accomplishes, accomplishes for us? He, he purifies our conscience from dead works so that we can do what? So that we can now serve the living God. Remember, when they were made unclean by being around a dead person or a dead animal, they were cut off from God's people. They can no longer serve. They can no longer worship. They can no longer be a part of God's people. And the same reality is true of us, right? When we are defiled by our dead works, when we are dead in our sins, when we're dead in our transgressions, when we are defiled by our dead works, we cannot serve the living God. But when Christ redeemed us on the cross, he purified our, our conscience from those dead works and therefore we are no longer cut off from God and we can now serve the living God. Look, this is so important to get right, is to get the order of this right, right? This is, this is at the very foundation of what it means to follow Christ, of what Christianity is, of what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world is that we are redeemed in order that we might do good works, that we might serve the living God. We don't serve the living God in order to be redeemed, in order to earn our salvation. No, we are given freedom by the purification of our conscience to therefore have the privilege to serve the living God. That's what Christ has accomplished for us. It is an unspeakable privilege that we are allowed to serve God himself. Look, these are glorious realities that took place. And there is mystery here 
beyond imagining, but yet God chose to reveal to us these greater spiritual realities that took place when Christ died on the cross. As Christ was laying down his life on the cross, he entered into the greater place, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, the one that's not of this creation, the, the heavenly tabernacle where the, the Holy Father existed, exists, and, and Christ, through his own blood, because he bore our sins, entered into that holiest of holy places and achieved our eternal redemption and purified our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God, which means all that trust in Christ now have access to the Father. All that trust in Christ are united to him and join him in the holiest of places through his finished work and through the blood that he shed. And what a privilege it is this morning to be able to come to the Lord's table together to be reminded of exactly what Christ did for us. And as we eat the bread, symbolizing the broken body of Christ, that we, as 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim these heavenly realities. And so I just plead with you to prepare your heart, even as I pray now, even as we sing here in a moment, prepare yourself for this moment of being able to participate at this table being reminded of what Christ has, in fact, accomplished for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these eternal, unseen realities. And Father, we thank you that in your good and uh, good grace to us, you, you chose to reveal these truths to us these unseen realities that we would have never known occurred had you not told us that they occurred. And so, Father, I, I pray that these truths, as I prayed earlier, would, would set a rock-solid foundation under our feet, that we would find our confidence in what Christ has accomplished in the greater places by the greater sacrifice of his own life through the greater redemption that he has achieved for us, for the eternal redemption of Jesus Christ in our place. And so, Father, be at work in us, even as we sing, preparing us to proclaim his death until he comes through the Lord's table. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.